Welcome to the checkout. Today's episode is produced in partnership with Acres USA. Hope you enjoy. Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture, is committed to being a lifelong educational partner for farmers and ranchers around the world. Since 1971, we've joined forces with farmers and ranchers who care about soil health to produce events, books, magazines, and online learning courses. From a farmer who's just getting started to an experienced professional who just won't settle for good enough, wherever you are in your journey, we're here to help you. Visit acresusa.com to learn more and catch our Tractor Time podcast anywhere you find podcasts. Welcome to the checkout, Sarah Jaffe, author of Work Won't Love You Back, one of my favorite new books. Welcome. Great to have you here. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So Sarah, you are like the OG labor journalist of our generation. (laughs) You're doing it before it was cool. (laughs) I did put that in my Twitter bio, didn't I? I mean, very, I, I do sort of set myself up to feel old a lot, which sometimes is great. Like I was just writing a blurb for a new young labor journalist's book. Um, her name's Eve Livingston. She's based in Scotland and she's excellent. And her book is great. And I'm just like, I really do love being, having that kind of feeling of like, oh, there are so many of you now. But, you know, there are people who came before me that I looked up to. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's an ongoing desperate attempt to keep the beat alive. <laughs> what drew you to labor journalism? I had a lot of, can I swear on your podcast? I, you've never heard me talk, obviously. <laughs> I had a lot of shitty jobs, man. Um, I worked in restaurants and, uh, that'll get you thinking about the conditions of your own labor, like nothing else. I, yeah. And I grew up in Massachusetts and that meant I grew up in a very particular punk scene that actually had like a lot of songs about unions, which I really do kind of credit for. Uh, am I hearing a Dropkick Murphys fan here? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> the Dropkick Murphys, the Ducky Boys, the Street Dog. It was this whole thing, right? That was oh, yeah. like this very particular sort of blue collar Irish working class kind of a shtick, but also like, you know, um, a real thing. And it really sort of introduced that into my thinking politically at the same time as like, you know, punk rock introduces all sorts of other things into your thinking Mm. at about the same time as you're having your first experiences doing wage labor, which is a great combination. Um, Wage labor is terrible and no one should do it. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) Um, Speaking of of labor. I, I want to actually ask you this question yeah. first. Your research is meticulous. I actually enjoy reading your citations as much as I re- enjoy reading your prose because <laughs> you've just Thank got, you. it's just like so dense. It's like, there's so much going on. And you know, how do you keep track of everything that you're uncovering or coming up with to then, you know, compile it into like really well-written stuff? I mean, my number one thing is that like, I'm a fast reader, which is very helpful. Um, But like, I 
think one of the things that is good about being a beat reporter is you sort of build on things constantly. So everything you work on is building on stuff you've learned previously. It's building on stuff you've reported on. It's building on stuff you've read. Um, and that now that we've sort of built a community of other labor journalists, and I know a lot of labor historians and, and labor sociologists and all these wonderful people. Um, and so everything sort of begins to build up to a bigger conversation that we're all having. And so that's how I find a lot of stuff to read is through recommendations from other people or things that other people write. Um, you're going to ask me for book recommendations later, so we'll get to those. But like <laughs> the, the way that I keep track of everything is like a complicated mishmash of, of you know, apps and gadgets and, and the program Scrivener, which is what I actually use for book writing. But in terms of sort of remembering things. It is sort of a process of, of like seeing things and, and working things into everything you write so that like a lot of the time it'll be like, oh, I wrote about that before. And I'm going to go find that article that I wrote because then I'll have the link saved in that article that I write. And then I can pull that back up and put it in the book. And then I have 40 pages of citations. And one, one interviewer was like, it's quite an academic book. And I was like, I am not an academic, but I guess, thank you. Like, she's like, you have 40 pages of citations. And I was like, I learned in journalism school to cite my sources. Like <laughs> fact-checking, fact-checking is good. Um, fact-checkers are wonderful and not enough publications employ them. So, you know, I, I think some of the reason for citing so much is like, I'm always double-checking myself to make sure I'm getting it right. Mm -hmm. And um, because as I believe uh, comrade Tressie McMillan Cottom says, citation is praxis, you know? So when you're talking about something that Angela Davis wrote about, it's important to me to say like, citing Angela Davis is, is like putting myself not in her category at all because she's a genius and I am not, but like it's putting myself in a line and a lineage of thought and conversations that people have been having for decades, even centuries. I'm one of those weirdos who actually reads the citations and will sometimes look them up. And it's a good way to unfan me if I find one of your citations doesn't match or contradicts or doesn't exist. <laughs> and I've done it before. And so like um, reading through your stuff, um, it, it's just meticulous and just really thoughtful and careful. So I just appreciate that. And it adds a lot to the dimensions of what you're talking about. Speaking of um, you know, folks that came before you. Yeah. Um, I got really excited when I was reading the first few pages because you mentioned one of my favorite historians and rabble rousers, Sylvia Federici, who I've, I've been reading her stuff since I was in the New York punk scene, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And so tell us just a little bit about Sylvia Federici, who she is and what kind of influence her research has had on your recent writings. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So Silvia Federici was one of the founding thinkers of the wages for housework movement, which is something that um, despite my attempts to avoid doing housework, if at all possible, um, I relate to greatly. And that's largely because the wages for housework movement was in many ways, a movement of women thinking about how to get out of doing the housework as well. Um, so Silvia Federici wrote a piece in the 1970s called Wages Against Housework that was one of these sort of foundational arguments about why housework is work that is part of creating profits for capital because it's reproducing workers for 
which is, you know, workers are what the entire system runs on. So in making that argument, they're also making the argument that they're doing this work unpaid, right? That, that this, and it's still, you know, from 1972, 2021, one of the things we've learned in the pandemic is that the work done in the home is still disproportionately done by women. And that, you know, because we still don't have functional childcare in the US and many other countries too, since I'm talking to you from the UK right now, um, when it comes to a question of your wage job or the work in the home, women are more likely to be the ones who are pushed out of the waged workplace to have to take care of the work that needs to be done in the home. We are more likely to have to take care of elderly family members, the children, um, whatever needs doing because men's work is still sort of presumed to be more important than women's work. So Sylvia Federici, along with Selma James, Maria Rosa della Costa, and many, 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 many others, um, put this all together and, and were involved in actual, you know, political organizing and demands for the recognition of this kind of caring and domestic work as work. They took inspiration from like the welfare rights movement in the US, um, from struggles of sex workers, from struggles of um, black women for equal access to state supports, from all of these things that said that like the picture that we have of work is incomplete if it's only a picture of a white guy going off to the factory or the office every day. So in that, they, their analysis sort of also includes like the, the waged work that many women end up doing, which is also tends to look a lot like the work that we're expected to do unpaid in the home. So you can see like how this analysis ends up becoming a framework to look at everything, to understand like why certain work is considered valuable and why certain work is considered not worth paying for is actually a strategy for getting it for free. And that means somebody is still benefiting from it. So Sylvia Federici also wrote this wonderful book called Caliban and the Witch, which is a history of the witch hunts and the enclosures and the foundings of capitalism and what happened when the commons were closed off and women in particular lost access to means of subsistence that weren't attached to a man. So this sort of grounding of the definition of woman as somebody who stays home and does the work in the home and man as somebody who goes out and gets a waged job comes from this period of time where there's also this incredible violence being enacted on the bodies of mostly women, although not entirely women. And so she argues that the witch hunts are a massive form of labor discipline and particularly disciplining reproductive labor, right? And it's pushing women into the home so that you can track whose child they're bearing. Um, this was well before paternity tests, right? And therefore you have a, a sort of protected um, men's sort of property interests in their children. Um, if property becomes something that's inheritable rather than held in common, then it has to be passed down through the family line, which means you have to know who was the father of the kid. Which before, you know, again, the paternity test, nobody could really be entirely sure of without keeping your wife locked up in the house. So all of these things um, are built into the very foundations of capitalism. They're built into the very foundations of who accumulates what, why, and how, and who suffers and who pays for it who does what work, where, and why. So how did 
this evolve into our modern domestic relationships and how the the nuclear family has influenced the structure and economics of the modern workplace. Yeah, I mean, I would flip that around and I would say that the nuclear family is created by the modern workplace, right? So the, the nuclear family, I've been thinking about it a lot lately as like a technology of work. Right. So like the family, when women are are forced back into domestic labor in the, you know, 1600s or whatever. Right. um, That's not necessarily the nuclear property owning family the way we think about it now. That is a particular um, relic, I would say, of the era of sort of advanced industrial capitalism, which came about because workers had actually won some concessions, were able to get paid a decent enough wage to have a decent enough place to live so that you didn't have 20 people crammed into a house, right? Which was the common conditions of the working class when, you know, Engels was writing the, the you know, the working class in Eng- about the working class in England. He's writing about these awful slum conditions where everybody's packed in, not a working class that could like buy a house in the suburbs. So you get the nuclear family out of some combination of victory from workers, right? It's important to note that. And also um, this continued expectation that wage labor in the shop is something that men do. So the thing that we called the family wage, which was something, again, that was demanded by workers, but also offered by people like Henry Ford, um, came with a lot of actual real supervision. So Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, right, decides we're going to pay our workers $5 a day, which was a lot of money back then, $5 a day. But you only get the $5 day if you are an upstanding white worker in the way that Henry Ford thinks you should be, which means you are married to a woman, you are procreating, you are doing all of these things. And he literally had a department of people called the sociological department that their job was to come around, knock on your door and make sure that you were doing all the things in the ways that you were supposed to be doing all the things. And so the sort of supervision of the family in this way, um, I think is, is really important to talk about and to sort of write about. Um, there's a wonderful piece in Gramsci's prison notebooks called Americanism and Fordism that in my head, I always think of it as fucking under Fordism because um, I mean, poor Gramsci was sitting there writing these in prison, but what he's writing about is the way that human desires have to be sort of tamed and regimented into a certain form in order to be controllable and usable by capital. So he's writing about Henry Ford and this kind of supervision of the family as something that is designed to sort of put a lid on messy, complicated human desires and connections. And so when we think about the family in this way, as a product of, again, both victories and defeats and surveillance and all of the other things for the working class, or at least for a part of the working class, right? Which is mostly white and male. Um, part of, again, if we flip the idea of the family wage, part of what you get with that family wage is you get a servant, which is your wife. Um, and the wife doesn't actually have access 
to that wage. It's not hers, right? It's paid to the husband. There's no check coming from Henry Ford to the wife in that situation. Um, and this is the dynamic that the wages for housework movement to bring it all neatly back around. See how I did that? Um, this is the dynamic that the wages for housework movement is protesting. They're saying, right, that Henry Ford and company were all very aware that the wife is doing important work in this situation by making sure that the husband is fed and functional to go back to work the next day. And that means that part of that family wage should actually be paid to them. Wow, that was amazing. I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, pandemic life has meant like cramming us all down into like the smallest possible unit. So it, it really, despite the fact that the nuclear family is, is falling apart in the age of, of precarious labor that's returned to us, the, the way that like the pandemic, social distancing, all of these things has forced us back into these sort of little individual family units that I've been thinking about as, as Margaret Thatcher units, because Margaret Thatcher, of course, famously said, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. So if you don't have a family, like I don't, I mean, my mother is still alive. I have a sister, but I don't have a husband, a like nuclear situation. Then you just spent the pandemic alone. And what that has shown a whole bunch of us is how screwed up this entire situation is. So your new book really dives into this dialectic between the exploitation and gaslighting of folks' experience on the job and the inevitable resistance that yeah. ensues, whether passive or active. And can we dig into some of the like really interesting illustrative examples? And I'm particularly interested, you know, one, because I'm coming from retail and a bit of nonprofit, but also the tech sector. I think that mm -hmm. was really telling. And then also how love is weaponized as, as yeah. a means of exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that was really interesting to me when I started the reporting on the tech sector, and I actually um, part basically the reason that I'm in London so much now is when I came over here in 2019 to report on the video games workers who had formed one of the first unions of video game programmers in the world. Um, I met a bunch of awesome people and here I am. Um, so, but the games workers um, surprised me because all of this writing about the family, right? The first half of my book is sort of situated in this argument that you just heard me make that um, a lot of the work that women do in the workplace is based in the work that is done unpaid in the family. But I didn't expect to hear from games programmers, which is an overwhelmingly young white male industry, that their bosses too always talk about how the workplace is a family. And that was really interesting to me, right? The, the, this work that is like very, very gendered in a different way, um, the boss sort of still talks about it as a family and that the tech workplace, in fact, is sort of designed to replace your family. So, you know, if you read, again, I'm getting ahead of myself on the book recommendations, but Kate Lossie's book, The Boy Kings, which is a, her memoir of her time working at Facebook, um, she writes about how the entire workplace is sort of set up to have like toys and games and all of the needs of these young nerds taken care of right that yeah, marks perpetual adolescence <laughs> right yeah and it, and it sort of 
Um, these workplaces are sort of set up to shepherd young men between the moment when their mom takes care of them and the presumable moment when their wife will take over. Um, and the way that like, um, oh God, I forget the name of the people in Harvard Business, um, the Harvard Business Journal who wrote about like this, the internet of stuff your mom won't do for you anymore is basically what like, you know, the, the gig economy is. It's all of these on-demand services of, of stuff your mom doesn't do for you anymore. So it's still building these things when you're talking about like um, delivery companies, right? Like Uber Eats or, you know, um, Seamless or Just Eat here in the UK um, or Deliveroo where the riders are always going on strike. So I love them. Um, or you're talking about Airbnb. It's like, oh, here's a home. Um, the Uber driver will drive you home when you're drunk. Um, you know, the task rabbit who you can get to come over and clean your house, care.com, you can get somebody to babysit your kids or babysit you, presumably. Um, any number of these things are basically doing the things that that women are supposed to do in the home. And one of the reasons that we need these things done now by paid, other than the fact that, you know, this is an industry full of man children, is that like women are in the paid workplace now. So a lot of women, rather than doing these things unpaid at home for their husbands, are the Uber driver, the delivery rider, um, the care.com care worker, the home care worker, all of the things that are now being done for a very low piecework wage. Um, but yeah, they can't afford to stay home anymore because the family wage is long gone. So the tech sector also still sort of revolves around women's labor and it revolves around this sort of devaluation of the parts of the job that are considered feminine. So um, I've been talking to Corey Kreider, who is at um, Foxglove. Actually, this reminds me that I am in London now and so is she and I need to look Corey up. Um, but Corey has been working with um, content moderators who work for companies like Facebook, but they're outsourced. So they work for, they work directly for companies like Accenture is one of them. Um, and they were told in some places in Texas during the pandemic that they were essential workers and had to come in and do their content moderation work from the office during a pandemic. But they're, so they're essential enough. This is Corey's point that, you know, Facebook will demand that they be doing this work in person, but they're not essential enough to actually be directly employed by Facebook or mm -hmm. to be paid even a fraction of what, you know, the programmers are paid. So, you know, this is the kind of work that even though content moderation, one would assume is central to Facebook's continued existence as, you know, not entirely a complete hell site, but it's not important because it's not like the hard work of being a programmer. So yeah, so I find I find the tech sector sort of endlessly fascinating because of all of these weird dynamics of of just like who we think does what work and therefore what value we assign to it. Tell us a bit about retail. Retail. The retail hell that so many. I of know, I know. Fun. Yeah, I, I spend many years in it too. Um yeah, the thing about retail that is so interesting is that, you know, the US economy used to be driven by production and, you know, Ford cars, whatever it was, branded things, right? And somewhere along the line, the big retailers took over. Um, so Walmart and now Amazon kind of run the show and they get to demand what gets produced, how quickly, where, what shelves it ends up on, all of these things are now driven by these big retailers. 
So these companies have a ridiculous amount of power. They accumulate a ridiculous amount of money, right? Like we all know how much money Jeff Bezos has. The Walton family has a ridiculous amount of money. These are the richest people in the world. These are the, you know, the biggest corporations in the world. They are the biggest employers in the US. I think Walmart is still bigger than Amazon and is still the biggest employer in the US other than the US Army. Mm -hmm. And um, so that tells you a lot. And like the workers get paid minimum wage. You know, Amazon's now making a big deal about paying its warehouse workers 15 bucks an hour. And it's like, Jeff Bezos has all the money in the world. You could afford to double their salary and And not break a sweat. It's also lowering the standards in their industry because so much right. of the sector is union. So right, exactly. The warehousing sector actually gets paid more than fifteen dollars an hour <laughs> in a lot of cases, right? Um, so right, logistics workers have actually long been a source of union power. We're talking about like the Teamsters and the International uh, Logistics, yeah, Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU. So like we have um, anyway. But retail itself um, and the the job of being in the retail workplace has been women's work forever, right? This has been, um, and there was sort of this horror, Bethany Morton writes about this really beautifully, of this, this like fear that men would have to do retail jobs and thus be feminized because this was just like service labor and that's, you know, that's for girls. So, so it's been underpaid. It's been under focused on by a lot of unions, right? Um, the, there were at some point like big retail clerks unions that sort of faded. The UFCW has um, a lot of strongholds in grocery stores and drugstores, um, but a lot of specialty retail department stores, things like that, other than a few big ones, again, in New York, I've, I've interviewed um, the union workers at like Bloomingdale's, but a lot of this is non-union work. It's insecure work. It's part-time work. Um, it's rife with sexual harassment and every other form of thing. It's deeply racially segregated. So like if you work in a clothing retailer, um, white workers will tend to be at the front and helping you try on your clothes and checking you out. And black workers will be relegated a lot of the time to the stock room. So there are all of these screwy issues with retail. It's also where a lot of people get their first jobs. So when you think about like what retail work teaches you, right? When you're 14 or 15 years old, getting your first job, like I was, um, it teaches you to smile and put up with a lot of shit, right? Um, it's teaching you how to do emotional labor that will be, I mean, I, I joke about, you know, retail and restaurant work teaching me how to be a good journalist because I can sort of paste a smile on my face and put up with anything anyone says to me for a certain period of time if I know I'm getting good quotes out of it the same way I used to be able to do it when I knew I was getting tipped. So all of this is to say that like this kind of work, like the feminized, the fear that workers would be feminized by being in these jobs is, is actually um, this misunderstanding of skill, right? So when I say I learned how to paste on a smile and put up with anything someone says to me, that's a skill set I learned. I wasn't born with it because I was, you know, born a girl. Um, I learned it because I learned to do that work. I was also raised by restaurant workers. So like it was all in my blood. <laughs> my whole family comes out of the restaurant industry. My sister and I fled it as soon as we could. But like the way that we miss these things as skills not just in sort of the economy, but also in like interpersonal relationships, again, to go back to the family. 
the idea that like men can't do this work or they're naturally worse at it or whatever. It's just because like they haven't been as likely to be pushed into positions where they have to learn how to do it. Let's switch gears because some of your, your recent articles have really struck a chord with me as well. You wrote about worker centers. Yeah. And um, this is a, a really, you know, much more visible phenomenon that's occurring, especially among immigrant workers. And why don't you tell us about some of your learnings about the role worker centers are playing in the modern labor movement? Yeah, so worker centers come out of a period of weakness for traditional unions, right? Um, They are based often in a particular immigrant community or a particular industry, and they focus on organizing not to, you know, create union members, although a lot of the times, you know, worker centers will work in concert with unions and some members will end up unionizing. But they do a combination of things that unions um, sometimes legally can't do and other times just sort of didn't want to do. And the article I wrote about worker centers was part of a package that the American Prospect put together on um, the different roles that worker centers play. And the thing that I was writing about in particular was the way that worker centers are rooted in sort of social movement demands a lot of the time. So the immigrant rights movement, um, the massive immigrant, day without an immigrant strike in um, 2006, right, against the Sensenbrenner bill, which would have criminalized being undocumented in the US, that was organized by, in many cases, you know, worker centers. They were the ones who had the members in the community who could turn people out and who had already been organizing around the workplace. And this is, again, this is a moment of weakness for the labor movement. It's also at a moment when a lot of big unions were frankly not comfortable organizing immigrant workers because they saw them as the enemy. They saw them as driving down wages. And what worker centers, you know, correctly said is that we can actually drive up wages for everybody if we organize the most exploited people in the workforce who tend to be undocumented because they don't maybe they don't know the law, maybe they have little access to getting, you know, any sort of respite legal representation, any of these things. So worker centers tend to do that legal work. Um, They tend to provide some services, in some cases, job training, in other cases, like real basic services that people need, because a lot of these crappy jobs don't pay them enough to live on. And they do work that acknowledges the whole worker, right? So um, the story that I begin that piece with is of the Awud Center, which is a worker center based in the East African immigrant community in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And they did not start out to organize Amazon, but there were um, a lot of Somali immigrant workers working at the Amazon facility in Shakopee. Um, And Amazon was specifically targeting immigrant workers, right? Because once again, figuring that they don't actually know American labor law and that they will be easier to exploit. Well, it turns out that a lot of the Somali workers had a great tradition of solidarity and um, they have been the first ones in the U.S. to get Amazon to bargain with them. Although Amazon does not call it bargaining, it calls it like community, some outreach, whatever. The fact is that a bunch of, you know, recent immigrant Muslim workers got Amazon to agree to the conditions that they wanted for prayer time, fasting during Ramadan, things like that. So um, that is one example. And they're not 
a union, right? But they organize and do direct actions in the workplace and they win things that way. So when worker gets fired, 20 workers walk off the job, right? And these are big warehouses. So, you know, on the one hand, 20 workers is a small fraction of the workforce. On the other hand, these are huge warehouses and 20 workers walking off the job when Amazon is counting on prime delivery speeds can really screw up the warehouse. So, you know, these levers of power um, that exist, whether or not you are actually legally members of a union um, are something that worker centers have been very good at. And um, I write about the Miami Worker Center, which um, does a lot of organizing with domestic workers, again, immigrant domestic workers in Miami. And because of that, they're also doing a lot of work around housing because who are the most housing insecure people? migrant workers doing service work that is often under the table that don't necessarily have legal status that are easy to exploit by bosses and also easy to exploit by, you know, crappy landlords. Not that there are a lot of good landlords, but you know. Um, And so it's this kind of organizing that understands that as many people say, right, workers don't lead single issue lives. So you have to organize around what their demands are. If those demands are accommodation for prayer time rather than just a raise, then you think about that and you think about how we win that. If your issues are not just that you, you know, got laid off during a pandemic because you are working as a nanny and now you're about to lose your home, then you organize around losing your home, around not losing your home. And so this kind of organizing, um, it doesn't have the power and the resources that the big unions have, but it's actually taught unions a lot about how to do things. And so things like the fight for 15 now take a lot of strategy tactics from worker centers, things like minority actions in the workplace, um, minority meaning a small fraction of the workplace, not that the workers are classified as minorities, I should say. And the, the understanding that workers have more needs than, than um, what some people will call bread and butter issues and what I like to call lowest common denominator issues, which basically always seems to be, you know, straight cis white man issues. So since you mentioned uh, food service in this context, let, let's talk a bit about how COVID-19 has exacerbated the sort of racialized and, and gendered divisions of labor and food service, but how food service workers are pushing back around better wages and safety, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, Mm -hmm. right? It's like I learned in, you know, econ 101 or whatever the heck it was back in high school that when supply goes down, then the price is supposed to go up. And when the supply of labor goes down, then the price you get paid, otherwise known as your wage is supposed to go up. But, you know, bosses have gotten really used to paying food service workers in particular the absolute bottom of the barrel. The legal tipped minimum wage in the U.S. is still $2.13 an hour, and it has been since I got my first waitressing job in I don't want to tell you what year because I'm old. So, like, you know, it has not changed since the 90s, my friends. And um, what can you buy with $2.13? Can you buy a can of Coke with that? I don't know. Um, Probably maybe not in New York city anymore, but like (laughs) the way that, you know, we've seen this like collective 10 temper tantrum 
by like restaurant owners and McDonald's franchise owners and like, you know, these petty little taped up signs on drive throughs that are like, nobody wants to work anymore. So please be patient with us because we've only got one employee because our employees decided that this is crap. Um, it's great. But like, as you know, many economists have rightly noted in this moment, the thing you're supposed to do when you can't get workers at the wage you want to pay is offer more wages. But instead, you know, a bunch of them expect the government to just like yank back unemployment benefits and 16 well, states or something like that. Yeah, governors have in fact happening. done that because yeah. this is, you know, and this is, this is the history of any sort of relief policy in the US, but also, you know, it's, it's a tradition that we borrowed from good old England right here. And it's a tradition that like Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward write about that um, exists to sort of tamp down on social unrest, but also make sure that there is cheap labor. So, you know, when the pandemic hits and a bunch of businesses have to close down, if we actually just threw everybody out into the streets with absolutely nothing, there would have been, well, there were riots, but there would have been bigger ones. And there would have been more things on fire than a couple of police stations. So you have to give people something, right? Because it turns out we aren't all just willing to roll over and die. Although a lot of people have died because, you know, we didn't give people that much. So when the riots slow down and it appears to be safe, at least sort of, to reopen businesses, they want to yank back the policies that actually allowed people to, you know, eat because you want to push people back into the workforce. Um, And it turns out, you know, despite all of the stuff that I wrote about in my book about how, you know, everybody likes to tell us that we are working because we love it and we find it fulfilling and it's so exciting. It turns out that actually most of us work so that we don't starve. And when you have an option of not starving without going back to your shitty job, a lot of people will take it. I don't consider that a problem. I consider that a solution and a good level of understanding and and class consciousness that we are getting to now. Um, But, you know. The governor of Texas doesn't agree with me. The governor of Florida, the governor of whichever state. No, the cowboy white nationalists still living in the uh, Confederate time zone. Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, it's not just them, but uh, it was Montana that started it. So you're you're spending a little time in the UK. The UK has among the world's, you know. I, you know, I'll qualify this a bit, most successful social democratic parties in the world. Yeah, well, not these days. Not these days. <laughs> um, the, the legacy. Sorry, Keir Starmer, not sorry. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I would say folks understood Tony Benn and some of the, you know, the, yeah. the, the history. But I mean, looking at the UK and, and the US, um, what are three or four major policy changes that you, you would... If you had, if Sarah Jaffe were writing policy, Sarah Jaffe's uh, uh, worker ideas. should own the means of production. Um, All right, look, yeah, what, what yeah, yeah. should? <laughs> All right, okay. Aside from it. the workers owning the means of production, <laughs> although you know, I was just having uh, coffee the other day with my friend Matt Lawrence from Commonwealth Think Tank, who uh, does in fact write policy around um, giving workers at least a slice of ownership over the means of production. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they write about things like inclusive ownership funds, the right to buy, um, stuff like that. So that, you know, if you're 
talking about, you know, a factory is closing down, then the workers should have the right to buy it and run it themselves. Um, or a coffee shop, which I, there's just a story just about happened. that again. Yeah, exactly. Um, just happening. So, right. Like, you know, the Republic windows and doors workers back from the early days of the last freaking global crisis, um, who occupied the factory and ended up owning the factory. So, you know, that, you know, is, is both a joke and not a joke that yes, workers should in fact own the means of production. Um, but you know, I'm, thinking about the child tax credit that was the child tax credit expansion that was passed in the Biden rescue plan, right? That actually undoes welfare reform in a way, right? It actually gives money directly to parents who have children, um, unquestioned money, money that's going to be paid directly into your pocket as long as you have, you know, filed your taxes and however recently it's is that they need you to file your taxes, you'll get a check. Same way as the government sent us all a stimulus check. Um, they're, there's, they're just gonna continue to be checks for parents. I think that's wonderful. I think we should double the amount and make it permanent. Um, and that's a good start. Um, you know, I think talking about working less is one of the most important things we could be doing for many reasons. One is because work sucks. Um, two is because one of the best ways to actually equalize the amount of work done in the home, if we're talking about heterosexual couples, which, you know, we still are in a lot of cases anyway, um, is to have everybody doing less work in the paid workplace. Um, three, because, you know, the planet's on fire. And so friends of mine at the 40 week campaign and before that at the think tank autonomy have put out papers talking about how much carbon we would cease to burn if we worked less, right? Um, and beyond those exact calculations, it's, it's clear that the world that industrial capitalism has created has created conditions which, if we keep going under them, will make the planet uninhabitable for humans and most other species. So we actually have to rethink how we live, which is to say we have to rethink how we work and consume. And I don't know about you, but especially after like a year and a half of off again, on again, lockdown, which means again, like living alone for a lot of it, spending a lot of time just by myself, I would really, really go for just like more time to chill with my friends this weekend. I, you know, met up with a bunch of people in the park that I hadn't seen in a year because I just got back here and it was great. And I just found myself sort of gritting at everybody, like, you know, five-year-old, just like, my friends are so pretty. I missed you. <laughs> um, eating strawberries and drinking tinnies in the park, you know, just like, this is great. This is low carbon leisure. I love it. I love these people. I don't actually need that much to make me happy. What would life be like if we had more time to chill in a park with our friends and less time at a stupid job so we can buy crap we don't need? Um, right? And this is actually, um, yeah, so less work to save the planet and also because it's fun. Um, and that there are, are ways to understand the value that people have outside of the value in the Marxist sense that they create for capital. What's inspiring you lately? Um, massive, massive protests in the streets, pretty <laughs> much everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, I think 
workers on strike are always um, inspiring. You know, the workers in Bessemer who fought Amazon didn't win this time around. Hopefully they'll win the next time. Um, I think the general strike in Palestine was mm-hmm. incredibly inspiring. Um, the fact that that you had people manage to pull off a strike across like three different segmented parts of a country that are under vastly different working and living conditions and levels of oppression. Um, that was incredible. Yes. Um, and the folks in Scotland a few weeks ago who stopped an immigration raid, um, the guy who, yeah, the guy who, who, crawled under the van and just held on so it couldn't move and everybody else in the neighborhood who came out and said hell no um yeah that's that's pretty uh pretty inspiring awesome so any further book recommendations so many so what have i named here okay i know i talked (laughs) about bethany morton who wrote to serve god in walmart which um a retail podcast should definitely uh y'all should Mm. definitely be listening to or reading um, I mentioned Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward. That book is Regulating the Poor. I also recommend Poor People's Movements, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about Caliban and the Witch. I think- um, Eve uh, Livingston. Yes. Eve Livingston's book is Make Bosses Pay. That's coming out shortly from Pluto Press. And also my friend Amelia Horgan's book coming out even more- even sooner from Pluto Press um, called Lost in Work. Both of those are books about how work sucks and what to do about it. Um, Jamie McCallum's book Worked Over is excellent. I was just thinking about that one. Um, There's one more that I mentioned that I'm blanking on right now. Um, Oh, The Cost of Being a Girl Mm. by Yasmin Besson-Casino is a book about... um, young women's first jobs mm-hmm. and how they set us up for a lifetime of discrimination and garbage. It's a lot about the retail industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and this wonderful book, Countercultures, which I am blanking on the name of the historian who wrote it, but I'm going to look it up right now because it's a wonderful labor history of women who worked in retail at the turn of the century. Um, and... Google is failing me at this moment. I hope you edit this. Um, There we go. Susan Benson, Countercultures, Saleswomen, Managers, and Customers in American Department Stores, 1890 to 1940. That sounds amazing. Um, That's a great book. And last but not least, um, two more that I just read that I'm doing an event with both of these authors very soon. Um, Heather Berg's book, Porn Work, which is about exactly that. And Gabriel Winant's book, The Next Shift, which yes. is about the shift from um, industrial labor to healthcare labor in Pittsburgh. Awesome. Wow. That is quite a list. That's like- a, uh, <laughs> You started out by talking about my references, man. I, I got book <laughs> like I, It's amazing because I sometimes have to really uh, push our guests uh, oh my goodness some of them don't like to Dude. read and then it's the opposite here like oh wow i've got a lot to catch up on here oh i got one more um <laughs> callum Kant's awesome. the callum Kant's book uh riding for deliveroo which is about being a deliveroo delivery driver so a book about the gig economy from the inside i have one more question i wanted to ask all you. right um because it's really the the forest for the trees or you know really for, for most of us we're just swimming through this and don't notice it and you, you talk a lot about it can you help define neoliberalism 
for <laughs> Yeah. So I think of neoliberalism as a political movement, right? So I take this from David Harvey that was def- was trying to save capitalism from the 1970s crisis by privatizing everything, destroying social solidarity. That's the Margaret Thatcher, there was no such thing as society part, right? Which is also means crushing labor unions um, and convincing us all that we ought to like all of this. Mm. And so this is why talking about neoliberalism in particular, I think is was important for my book, even though a lot of the time when people say neoliberalism, we should probably just talk about capitalism is the specifics of neoliberalism um, involve this kind of individualization and privatization of everything, whether that be selling off public housing to individual owners or what Mark Fisher wrote about the privatization of stress, right? Mm -hmm. So everything that bothers you is your problem. Nothing is a social problem. Everything is individual. If you hate your job, you should probably just go get another one or suck it up and try harder um, rather than, you know, forming a union and overthrowing your boss. So about neoliberalism, a lot of the time though, when we talk about neoliberalism, we're really just talking about capitalism, which is of course, just a system designed around capital accumulation and the um, theoretically free choice to do wage labor, which of course is not remotely free. Amazing, thank you. That's probably the best conversation definition we've had on the show about it. It's a lot, and I've I've seen a lot of folks struggle with conceptualizing that. So, any any yeah. closing thoughts? Um, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Obviously, you're super busy, and we really appreciate you making the time for us. Anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Mm, organize your workplace. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Jaffe, author of iconic book "Work Won't Love You Back: Necessary Trouble." as well as so much other journalism. So thank you so much for being on the checkout. Thank you. 